Hey, it's Turkey Week, March 11 through 17. Free shipping on all orders at First Light, FHF Gear, Phelps Game Calls, and the Meat Eater Store, too. You can pick up all the First Light gear that I wear in the Turkey Woods, plus so much more, including Meat Eater by Phelps Turkey Calls, which are straight up killers, and Vortex Red Dots at 20% off. We're going to get you set up for the turkey season. So set up, in fact, that all you have to do is focus on that tom. So head on over to TheMeatEater.com, March 11 through 17 for Turkey Week. Welcome to another episode of uh, Meat Eater's Gear Talk Podcast with your hosts, Giannis Patelis and Jordan Budd. Today, we are joined by Cam. I'm going to mess up his last name. Rensinger. Did I say it right, Cam? I got it. I nailed, nailed it. it. Um, Cam is the founder, owner of Nemo Equipment. And if you... Uh, haven't heard of Nemo equipment, you must have been living under a rock. Because if you go into any REI these days, uh, you don't have to walk probably more than 10 yards into that store and you're going to see either a camp chair, a sleeping bag, a tent, uh, and probably, I don't know, a few other items made by Nemo equipment. Um, they've been at it for a long time, make some super quality gear. Um, but we're not really here to talk about uh, Nemo in particular, but Cam is just going to talk to us about some general gear stuff, which we'll jump into in a minute. But uh, Cam, is there anything I missed that you'd like to add to uh, just like a, a general bio of yourself that you'd like to add in for our listeners? Yeah, that, that's, that was a good, that was a good uh, introduction, Giannis. I just want to say first, it's a super pleasure to, to join you guys. This one's been a little while in the making. So um, thank you for, uh, for having me here today. Well, we had to make a whole new podcast, you know, just to make a spot for you, right? <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> the media, the regular mediator podcast doesn't get technical enough for, yeah. uh, for, for a, a guest like you that can dive into the technic, like the super, super technical aspects of gear that we're going to do today. So yeah. anyways, go ahead. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm stoked to, to be here to talk about gear and talk about some of that technical stuff. I, I, I just add to my background, um, I went to school uh, for industrial design, so I'm, I'm a maker in the in the first place. Though I quote run the business these days, I'm still uh, very involved in the in the product design and development. Having said that, um, I'm going to talk about some things today. I'm sure that I'm not the world's expert on. Uh, you know, we have people on our team who are um, you know more qualified in materials and engineering things like that, but I still am very involved. So hopefully, I, I can. Uh, share some good knowledge with your with your listeners, and I should also say, I uh, I didn't grow up hunting. I, I discovered um, hunting in no small part thanks to to Stephen Ranella um, and his writings years ago, and uh, and really have become a passionate sportsman myself. So um, for that reason, also I'm I'm honored to uh, to be here. Great, yeah, we're happy that there's a large group of you. I think that can that you uh, find yourself in, right? That people have that have come to hunting probably through uh, Stephen Ranella's, you know, multifaceted media um, journeys. That's right. All right, well, let's jump right in. Cam sort of gave us some ideas of of what we could talk about when he was on, and the list is long. We're not going to be able to get to all of it, but what really caught Jordan's and my eyes. Was uh, that, you know, being that you've been in this business for like 25 years, you you really had some points sort of just talking about like sort of what you've seen in, in like the changes. And um, obviously there's been a lot of different changes, but specifically speaking about like what drives the products that our companies are making. Um, w- without explaining the whole thing, why don't you just jump right in, Cam, kind of, kind of, Tell me your initial thoughts on that, and then Jordan and I can pick your brain a little bit. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right, Giannis. You know, um, when I set out to, to do Nemo in the first place, uh, which was 20 years ago and, and a few months, um, I was a senior in, in design school. It was actually my kind of senior thesis project uh, to finish up design school, incorporated the business that spring, and then moved into our, our first office a few days after graduation. Um, I was you know, I was young and idealistic. I didn't have a lot of bills to pay. 
Um, I hadn't run a business before. Um, my business plan actually said I would be profitable in, in six months. It took about 12 years uh, to, to make that happen. <laughs> so, you know, I, I had a lot to learn, but um, but I had a few convictions um, to, to begin with. And, and one of them was I wanted to make really great gear and, and really be part of improving the experience of, of being outdoors. And I think that's that's true of um, really all the iconic uh, brands, high-end specialty brands we would think of. The, the founders, I'm sure, were driven by a similar passion. Um, but what I found, you know, over these... Hey, can I, I just want to interrupt real quick. Was yeah. When you were thinking about making really good, great gear, were you already in, in that moment being like, man, there's space for more really yeah. great gear or like yeah. I'm being let down by the current offerings. Is, is that where your head was at? I was, you know, it, and the industry and the consumer product world has changed a lot since then. So I think when we look around today, this would be less obvious, but 20 years ago, there was still actually a lot of white space. I mean, I mean, there were, there were still a lot of products yet to be invented. Um, there was a lot of improving still to be done. Um, so I, you know, I looked around, actually, I, I got the, uh, the mountain gear catalog in the mail a couple times a year. And that was kind of my basis for sort of seeing what was out there for mountaineering and backpacking gear. And I noticed, you know, that it was pretty much the same stuff year after year. And, uh, and so, yeah, I was, you know, and some of it was being 25 years old and, and pretty idealistic and naive again, but, um, but I, I saw a lot of opportunity. And, and at the time I was actually working for MIT paid for by NASA to, to work on spacesuit designs. Um, I had an office at MIT. So I was surrounded by, you know, engineers on the one hand and product designers on the other. And then on the weekends I was heading off to the mountains. Um, so I had this picture in, in mind of kind of merging all those things together, but back to your previous question, um, you know, what I've noticed in the couple of decades since is, I think as a result of this culture that we've been in of kind of measuring our success to some degree by the amount of stuff we surround ourselves with, the world is, you know, there's been such a proliferation of, of things and, and such a drive to make those things less and less expensive. Um, the quality is, has largely has been a victim in many cases uh, of that. And, uh, and I think when you're doing serious activities like backcountry hunting, um, where you're really, especially in certain moments, depending on the gear, um, to perform or to keep you safe, even, uh, it's still worth it to, to, to buy the best stuff. And, uh, and then the question becomes, how do you discern the difference between, uh, really high quality things and not so quality things? So you're not wasting your money. And, and I, I think that's what you're getting at is, is maybe something to explore a little bit today. Yeah, hundred percent. Like I, w I wanted to see, like you know, or hear you talk about, like you know, the the, the change, the changes that you just explained and and have seen over twenty years of you know probably in your competitors. But I guess can you give me some examples that you saw, and you don't have to name any um, of of your competitors or you know other outdoor brand companies' names, but just give me an example of like how that would actually come to fruition. Totally. Yeah, let's make it concrete. So, you know, and, and I won't disparage any brands, but I, I can give some positive examples of some things um, that really exhibit quality and have lasted. And I can also, uh, maybe I'll start by just relaying one of the first lessons I learned about quality uh, as I came into our industry was around coatings. So today, Nemo makes a variety of products, as, as you mentioned, but we started out um, just as a tent maker. and a really important part of of making a tent of course is making it waterproof and there's basically two different polymers that are typically used to to make a tent waterproof either polyurethanes or silicones and we can get and now into is that, that is that a, is that the fabric you're talking about or the coating on the that's fabric? the coating that's the coating on the fabric um and we could nerd out and, and kind of go deep on that but but just holding that notion for a second Sure. We decided in the early days of Nemo that that urethanes was the direction we were going to go, and uh, and and so you know, a couple of years into Nemo, we had been, you know, making, developing at that point, uh, tents, making a lot of samples. Um, eventually, I started the company in two thousand two. Eventually, 
we started sales in 2006. By the time we really kind of squared away the designs, we're ready to go to the market, uh, go to market. Um, and by say 2007, 2008, we had had samples now sitting in our storage and our archives for two, three, four years. And I remember, I can't remember the, the day and the year, but I remember the moment of going into the sample room and pulling out a relatively old sample. And as soon as I opened the drawstring on the storage bag, just being hit in the face with this gnarly smell and pulling the sample out and it's all like stuck together and like, like sort of like toffee. Um, the coating had just dissolved and uh, totally degraded. And, you know, for me, young guy, entrepreneur on a mission to make a great brand and make the best product, this was like, holy crap, what's going on here? Like, I, I'm going to have to, there's a lot I'm going to have to learn here. I got to get to the bottom of this. Mm-hmm. And, and so that kicked off, you know, kind of a journey for us that took years um, of really understanding urethane coatings and kind of getting to the bottom of what's going on in the supply chain and how to control that. And the short of the story of what happened there is, Urethane coatings, as I understand it, were actually really pioneered by the the U.S. military many decades ago um, as a a means of waterproofing that had really excellent cold weather resistance. You know, it's kind of stay pliable regardless of temperatures and quite durable. And and our own domestic coatings um, manufacturers really led that process, developed, you know, great chemicals. And so the early polyurethane coatings were uh, ether-based chemistry and would last many, many years. And as the the sporting goods industry supply chain moved to Asia, a lot of that kind of know-how was lost and the supply chain, sort of the whole supply chain behind the cut make so factories, all the, the yarns, the chemistries, everything went with that, of course, to Asia. And before too long, ether coatings started to get replaced by ester coatings because ester coatings are much less expensive. But ester hydrolyzes or breaks down with water quite easily. Um, and so in those early days of Nemo, we're having no idea that that's what we were doing. We were buying into this supply chain where quality had eroded um, because no one was really paying attention to it. And we were putting lousy qualities, uh, lousy quality uh, urethane on those early samples. Um, so that's that's an example of, you know, in that case, sort of due to a migration of of kind of the know-how um, as supply chains have moved around the world. But you know, at, at the same time, I think you know the consumer um, in the sort of post Amazon, post Walmart world that we live in, um, there's so much cost competition. Um, it's always putting pressure on brands that want to grow, particularly want to grow, you know, in the in the sort of bottom half of the market um, to lower prices, uh, even as labor costs go up, materials costs go up, and something has to give when you do that. And uh, and so over the years, I've seen, you know, the market increasingly being flooded with stuff um, that really isn't built um, to last. And and. As sort of an opposite example, I was thinking about this uh, this morning in anticipation of this discussion of just a couple of products in my own life that have been remarkably high quality. And uh, two that come to mind for me are, I'm an avid motorcycle guy. I've been a dual sport guy for a long time. And um, when I was a couple of years in an emo, I'm still not really paying myself much of a salary. I made a stretch and, and bought a BMW 650 Dakar and the, the BMW rally jacket to go with that, which is really expensive jacket um, at the time. And it was just, I, I forget exactly, but it was a lot of dollars. I still had and, that and now, jacket. D- now, you bought that jacket for aesthetics to go with that fancy bike or or was it partly, because yeah. it was I mean, partly, you know, I was 20 something years old. I wanted like, you know, the Beamer dual sport with the awesome Beamer rally jacket to go with it, but also... You know, I was planning trips to Mexico and Canada and, want, you know, wanted the performance features that they can't like the rally jacket's got a lot of cool um, ventilation and and uh, has a waterproof liner and um, some really smartly engineered uh, armor components and stuff like that. So it's, you know, to me, it was it was a value in both being cool, but also being, you know, really delivering on that performance side. But I still ride with that. Uh, this morning I was out of my, my bike. Um, so ride with that same jacket 18 years later. And, uh, because it's red, it has some red components on it and red 
pigment um, tends to fade faster than other colors. Mm-hmm. It's a little faded, but otherwise the functionality of that jacket is exactly the same as it was 18 years ago. And likewise, I still climb, uh, although I don't ice climb nearly as much these days, in fact, pretty infrequently um, in the last few years, um, I still have the same pair of La Sportiva Nepal top boots I bought when I was in college almost 30 years ago. And, and I just want to say it's, it's, you know, it's hard to, we can get into the details a little bit, but the, the challenge of making products that will do that actually, you know, a pair of boots that will last you for 30 years or a jacket that'll, you know, ride through rain and sun for 18 years, it's hard and, and requires, you know, real investment in design and engineering um, and testing. Um, and in a lot of things that are very hard to sell on the shelf, you know, the, the quality of um, stitching and coatings and yarns and things that the customer are not going to immediately be able to identify when they're kind of staying there looking at something on the rack um, mm-hmm. is really essential to, to, to meeting that kind of longevity. Well, let's just go back to like the, the, the tent example, when you're talking about the, the different uh, urethane coatings, you guys obviously learned and went to the, did you, the ether was the good one? Yes. The, the ether coating. So did you go yeah. back to that? And then were there other companies that just continued to produce the ester-based coating and can like just made a lesser product? It took a little while for the industry to figure out what was going on. I think, you know, we live in the in the sort of subset. If you were to look at kind of our industry as as a pyramid of, you know, the top of the pyramid being kind of the most high performance, most expensive and smallest market products to the bottom of the pyramid being the opposite of that. Um, you know, we live in the in the top third of that pyramid, say, um, and all of the brands essentially in that space, you know, are committed to making great product. That's how you you earn and retain your spot um, kind of in that stack, if you will. But um, but it took the industry a while to figure that out. I mean, uh, you know, we, we swap notes um, with other uh, competitor brands and retailers um, in the space and and collectively sort of put our heads together and reined in that supply chain um, over a matter of years. And, and today, you know, that issue of hydrolysis is well understood and, and you know, you shouldn't be buying a, a quality um, tent or a rain jacket or anything else that's coated with urethane and seeing it become really stinky and toffee-like uh, anytime soon. I see. So that this isn't like a, a thing where the consumer has to be like, all right, next time I'm going tent shopping, I need to check which urethane it was made with. Because well, it's been figured out. It, it has been figured out by the high-end brands, but it is the difference between, you know, going into a specialty store and spending a few hundred dollars um, on a reputable tent brand and say, you know, buying a, a very inexpensive tent from a box store. Can you give a high level on the silicone coatings versus like a, a poly, that polyurethane? Yeah, yeah. So silicone's great, actually. And, and, you know, we try to use it where we can. Um, it actually will retain more of the, the strength of the fabric. Like you can make a, a in an apples to apples comparison, you can make a, a stronger silicone coated fabric than, than urethane coated fabric. So that would, you know, that's almost always going to be very appealing. It's generally lighter too, which is great. The challenge of it, as we know about silicone from other places in our lives, we see it as nothing wants to stick to it. So you can't seam tape a silicone tent. Um, And over the years, some brands like Hilleberg was really at at the front end of this uh, many years ago, have developed stitching techniques, kind of combinations of threads and needles um, and and kind of folding techniques for seams that will, for the most part, block water um, from coming through stitches. And a lot of that, that, that theory is actually shared with like the canvas tent industry, where if you use a thread that will absorb some water, actually, it'll swell up and kind of fill the stitch hole and stop water from moving through it. Um, but we have not found that to to be as reliably waterproof um, as taping a tent. And so uh, though we've we've dabbled with it over the years, um, we generally prefer to use urethane-based coatings. Nice. 
Interesting. So what about instead of seam taping, you just uh, take the, uh, what's that stuff, like seam grip? Seam seal, ju- yeah. Seam seal and just seal the whole thing. You can do that. It's it's a, you know, it's a pretty it's a pretty big burden on the consumer is kind of our outlook on that. Like if we can deliver to you a tent that right off the shelf um, is going to be waterproof, we'd rather without other significant downsides, we'd rather do that than give mm-hmm. you a tent and a tube of seam grip and, and ask you to take your very expensive high end tent and try to do a halfway decent job. You know, <laughs> sounds like you've tried this before, Jordan. It's uh, oh, yeah. it's, it's, it's tough to do well. Um, it's, it has, you know, a lot of VOCs. it's pretty smelly stuff. I mean, if you're, you know, doing it in the house or the apartment, um, it's, it's pretty noxious. Uh, so if, you know, again, our, our mission, we did actually make a mountaineering tent in the early days where, where you had to seem grip it, but as soon as we figured out how to to not require that of the of the customer, we moved away from it. Well, and and how come the, uh, how come a company just can't do the seam sealing itself? Well, in a sense, that is what we do. I mean, by we, taping it is what you're by doing. taping it. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, and the the truth is, Giannis, I, I think someday we'll look back and think stitching a ten is a pretty silly thing. Stitching anything you want to be waterproof is kind of silly because we're. Mm-hmm you know, we're punching a zillion holes in it. And then we're having to go back and figure out how to cover all the little holes. Um, so, you know, another thing brands like us have worked on over the years is is trying to just weld tents together. There are many welded products, as, as we all know, out there um, at this point. Um, but the challenge we found there is is around weight. By the time you have enough coating or lamination on the fabric um, to create a good weld, um, because it's not really, the, it's not the yarns that fuse together. It's it's either the, the coating that gets knifed on or the lamination that gets bonded to the fabric that becomes the glue, you know, because it's like hot glue. Mm-hmm. You know, when you when you put that seam through heat and pressure, that coating or, or um, film melts and becomes the glue that joins everything together. By the time you have enough of it on there, you become uncompetitive in weight, you know. And if you think about, like we're making two-person tents. We and other high-end brands are, are making two-person tents in the realm of two pounds. I mean, that's two pounds is not a lot of material. You know, you spread mm-hmm. that out over a whole floor and canopy and fly, and you're talking about gossamer thickness stuff and, and just having to really optimize everything. What's that term you just used? Gossamer thickness? Yeah, like, you know, just like really, really thin, airy kind of stuff at this point. Interesting. Yeah, that's a that's an interesting point that even though it can't really be done today, that in probably ten years there might not be a rain jacket that has stitching in it anymore, huh? We'd all love to move that way. I mean, it would it would deliver more value to the customer in a couple of regards. I mean, there's a lot of labor time in the stitching and seam sealing of a tent, you know. So welding it would skip at least one step there um so it, it presumably could reduce um some cost uh for the consumer and then at the end of the day again you know if you're not punching a zillion holes and you don't have to go back and patch holes and we do find you know over the very long term the seam tape is still kind of the achilles heel of the tent um you're, you're basically taping over holes it's mm-hmm. it's not the mechanical connection of a stitched seam that tends to give it's usually the the tape over that um that's the first victim so we'd love to get rid of seam tape in the in the future i'll be looking forward to it hey it's turkey week march 11 through 17 free shipping on all orders at first light fhf gear phelps game calls and the meat eater store too You can pick up all the First Light gear that I wear in the turkey woods, plus so much more, including Meat Eater by Phelps Turkey Calls, which are straight up killers, and Vortex Red Dots at 20% off. We're going to get you set up for the turkey season. So set up, in fact, that all you have to do is focus on that tom. So head on over to TheMeatEater.com, March 11 through 17 for Turkey Week. Jordan and I have a lot of questions just about these techie questions, but I really want to do get to like a, a real concrete example of something that like the listener can take home or the next time they go, you know, shopping at REI or Sportsman's or whatever, and they're 
just like tr- trying to figure out if the the quality is there and if they're like it's worth it to pay that extra money when they whether it's you know a rain jacket that's you know 400 bucks versus a rain jacket that's 100 or you know the same thing in tents and sleeping bags like is there just some sort of like tips or like you know red flags you can like give to for people to look out for when they're doing their shopping to to you know when they're looking for better quality gear yeah, for sure. You know, and, and before I before I say that, I just want to say too that um, I I still you know all these years into our industry, I've accumulated a pretty good gear closet because you know within our industry we we tend to swap gear with each other and and offer you know deals to each other and things. So I, I'm I'm not for want of gear, and it mm-hmm. becomes easy I think to get a little spoiled and complacent about just how mm-hmm. expensive gear is, and you know when we when we've met um new friends over the years uh and you know introduced them to the outdoors and they've got excited about camping is always a moment when i realize like it's it's pretty darn expensive like you know setting up the family and a couple of kids uh to to really do camping and do it with good quality gear is is a big investment um so i want to say in the first place i think really the way to think about it is is you know finding value you know, for yourself based on what your needs are. And, you know, it's kind of like if, if you're just commuting to work, um, then an ordinary car does a great job. If you want to race F1, you need a, you need a formula one car and, uh, mm-hmm. and there's a pretty big difference in price. And there's a very big difference in the, the materials and engineering and design and construction. Um, and both are a value, right? It, it depends on the performance you're looking for. So, you know, I think if, you know, if, if you're going way out into the backcountry on a regular basis as a backcountry hunter and you're needing to be self-sufficient and you're, you know, you're going to face some pretty rugged conditions, um, that's justification, I think, for investing as much as you can in, in, in really gear that not only will perform again, but will also last. I mean, when I, when I think about my moto jacket and the fact I've had it for 18 years, let's say it was a thousand bucks in the first place, which it wasn't that much, but it was quite expensive. How many lousy jackets I might've bought to replace one after the other in 18 years and how quickly it would be a lot more than a thousand bucks. So I think that's that to me, that's sort of the framework through which to look at, look at it. Um, Back to sort of the cues, you know, one that I noticed just having been in our industry a long time and looked at a lot of, we call them bombs or bill of materials, like as we're developing a product, you know, we're, we're formulating a list of every single component and every, every labor hour that's associated with building that. And that, you know, ultimately drives what the retail price needs to be based on, you know, what margin we need as a, as a business um, to support our business. And then the margin that the retailer needs, plus, you know, potentially paying sales commissions and import duties and other factors. Um, so I, I've looked at a lot of bombs over the years and and I know where are the places that you spend money. And if you were a brand looking to sort of cut costs and have that not be super apparent to the customer, where you would likely do that. And you know, of course, the obvious place you would look is is the stuff that's not going to be real apparent on the shelf. You know, so a, a great example for me, and I, again, I'm just going to highlight, you know, a couple of brands as we're talking that, you know, or products, I think, that are really have been exemplary over the years. I, I've always, since the early days of Arcteryx, I've been a, a fan and appreciator of, of um, Arcteryx stuff. And uh and one of the things I actually became good friends with, um, with one of the early employees uh, of Arcteryx, um, who's in our industry now, runs a big sales agency that we do some work with. And he told me many years ago that about 15% or so of the cost of making Arcteryx clothing, now this was, you know, call it 10, 15 years ago, um, but I presume is still true today, will never be appreciated by the customer. It's completely invisible to them. You know, is is in seam tolerances and coatings and specs of of materials and findings like the little um, zippers and cords and things like that. That the customer is never gonna. Th- th- it's not it's not sold on the hang tag. It's not on the 
the website as a bullet point and most customers will have no idea. And it's just there on principle, you know, about trying to make the best quality mm-hmm. thing possible. Um, if you don't have those kind of values and you're looking to deliver a lower price point um, and sort of hide, you know, maybe have a lot of bells and whistles on a product, but kind of hide that you've cut corners, an easy place to do that is in webbing. And it's very hard to convey the difference between nylon and polyester and polypro, um, polypropylene webbing, webbing over a podcast. Um, well, tell, I think the easiest way too, though, to explain it, the webbing is, um, cause to me too, I'm kind of like webbing what's webbing, you know, and I can think of like a, a, a strap that's made of webbing, but yeah, like tell me where you would find web webbing in outdoor products. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. I, I sort of take for granted, um, that term, but yeah, so webbing is like the, exactly as you said, Jonas, it's it's like a heavy strap and it comes in different forms from down to like a shoelace, you know, to uh, to the, the seatbelt in your car. And, you know, there's a number of different ways to weave it. It can be flat, it can be tubular, um, but it's it's a very ubiquitous detail in outdoor gear, right? Like it's, it forms the handles on things, it forms the the tie down straps on say like on a lid of a backpack, you know, where you would clip that in and then pull a strap, you know, that's webbing. Every on strap the, on a backpack every would strap. fall into this category. Every strap. So you really, with, with very few exceptions, you want those straps to be nylon. Nylon is, is the strongest of the, the polymers from which webbing is typically made. There's exotic stuff, aramids and things like that. But generally speaking, um, nylon is going to be the, the longest lasting, strongest choice. Polypropylene floats, which, you know, in some boating applications is interesting. Like it, it can make uh, great lines for a, like a, a painter on a dinghy. Um, it can be useful for it because it, it floats on water. Um, but it's much weaker than nylon. It's also a lot less expensive. So I've seen so many bags, you know, on the floor of retail that are meant to to look awesome you know they've got all the bells and whistles tactical looking stuff pockets everywhere straps everywhere and you get up close and because i know that the tactile and visual differences i can see right away that is not nylon webbing that's polypro webbing um so that's that's just one of many examples so is that something though that if you're say you're uh looking at backpacks and I guess you could call the company, you know, that if they have a good enough customer service where, you know, someone real answers the phone, or if you're on the floor, say at Sportsman's Warehouse, if you're like asking the sales associate, hey, is that nylon or polypro webbing? Are they even going to have an answer for you? You know, it's, it's a good question and maybe not, right? Which is sort of part of the problem. Um, yeah. You know, I, I think it, it reminds me of um, home improvement. You know, and and you and I were talking about this recently, but just the difficulty these days of of finding really skilled, reasonably priced labor. You know, just mm-hmm. the the challenge today of um, finding quality work. I, I think there's just and this sort of back to the point I was trying to make in the beginning. It's there's a lot of really high quality stuff still out there in the world. I mean, you know, there are many brands committed to making great stuff that will last, but there's there's a lot of noise around that. And I think it's, it's, you know, if you want to, to really get the right equipment for yourself, um, there's kind of no choice today, but to, to put a little time into becoming somewhat of an expert, um, to try to accumulate some of your own knowledge, because I think you're right. Um, you know, there's, you're not necessarily going to find that on the sales floor. Um, you know, I mean, I, I think of, you know, just all the, the furniture out there in the world, and I won't name any brands in a disparaging way, but, you know, there's some some popular, expensive furniture brands charging thousands of dollars for things that doesn't have joinery, that doesn't, you know, that's not, it's not built to last. Um, the optics are nice, but that old world skill of making something um, that'll last for generations is harder to come by. And, and with that, I think the customer is less trained to look for it. And, uh, and that's, I think what we're getting at here too, is a lot of times customers aren't asking those questions. So sales staff don't have to have that knowledge. It becomes sort of a a negative feedback loop. Insert this podcast, why we wanted to do this whole thing, try to throw knowledge out there. Right now. 
Yeah. yeah, I would I would hope that if you called, say, out of the backpack companies that we've been messing with recently, like Stone Glacier, Exo Gear, Kefaru, Mystery Ranch, if you called them, I'd imagine that someone on the phone would be able to give you a solid answer to that question, right? I think without it, with the brands you just named, I'd be very surprised um, if they couldn't answer that question. You know, and, and I think that's sort of back to what I was saying before, where I, I think what I'm getting at um, is kind of wanting to justify for your listeners why we continue as consumers to 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 buy from brands like that, right? Because mm-hmm. you can get on Amazon right now and find a backpack for a whole lot less money than the, the brands you just named. And, sure. and I think it'd be a rational question to say, why would I spend 300 bucks on, on a mystery ranch bag as opposed to 30 bucks on you know, this thing on Amazon that's got 500 great reviews. <laughs> and, you know, and I think that the most generalist way to answer that is nobody in today's world, no brand makes an outsized margin. I mean, if you tried to to come to market um, making a enormous margin on things with how accessible supply chains are now and how easy it is to sell things online, someone's going to undercut that price tomorrow you know like we're we are all like it is more and more the case for companies like nemo and and every other consumer brand out there it's um it's a hyper competitive world um it's a very transparent and very flat world um so no one's robbing you and making like some ridiculous margin um and just pocketing that um so i think my the thesis i'm trying to 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 share with your listeners is um is sort of why, generally speaking, it's still worth worth it to to buy the higher quality gear and support the higher end brands. It's because it is turning into, I think, with very few exceptions, those dollars are going to the ingredients that you need to have a piece of equipment that'll do the things that we all, as as backcountry hunters, um, want to do. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to throw this out there because I just can't like let you go without asking this. I know we'll have you on another time. But give me like the like seriously the thirty second answer to because right on the heels or there's probably people listening right now going like yeah right that's why you guys make it in China or mm-hmm. Thailand or wherever overseas and you can't tell me that you can't you're not making it for super cheap and making a bunch of money on it so if possible try to give me like the thirty second answer to that and we'll leave the deep dive to another day but go ahead. Yeah, I mean, great question, um, and one we have faced and 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 wrestled with uh, many times over the years. This can be slightly more than thirty seconds. I have to forgive <laughs> <me>. <laughs> um, That's all I right. Actually, I was expecting when, it when when I when I started Nemo. I I really I was actually really determined to do the manufacturing in the U.S. Um, in in part out of just sort of pure um, kind of patriotism, but. But also in in large part because uh, I wanted to be able to easily travel to to the factories um, and kind of you know do development um, closely with them and learn you know learn from being able to be there you know in the chemistry factory you know or in the yarn factory um, and and we have done actually a fair amount of of manufacturing in the states over the years we, we've had a, a pretty strong um, business with special operations um, kind of peaked around the the Bin Laden mission era, um, you know. And for a lot of those uh, contracts, um, we we had to um, to sew items uh, in the U.S. Yeah, that might not be known to everybody, but like basically, if you do gear for the U.S. military, it has to be made in the U.S. of A. Correct. Yeah, it's at, at enough quantity, it does. Um, that's called the Berry Amendment. Um, yeah, so we, you know, we've got some real experience with that in the category of cut, make, sew. And I think that's a really important distinction. So there, there are many items, many types of manufacturing where America leads the way, um, and, and unequivocally, you know, still makes the best stuff. And, and there may be little reason, uh, to, to, to source, um, those items anywhere else in the world, except perhaps to, to cut costs. But the reality is what we found um, and what other high-end brands um, in our space have found is 
there aren't many Americans that want to sit at a sewing machine anymore. Um, that kind of work, that cut makes sew work, uh, the skill set, the talent, um, the investment in it has just moved to other parts of the world. And, and frankly, in many cases, other parts of the world that haven't sort of developed past wanting to see. I mean, I'd like to think that if you look at our sort of global value chain, the, the jobs that are American in our value chain are the ones in my office yeah. in Southern New Hampshire, which are design, engineering, development, testing. You know, I mean, where we're we're innovating, we're adding value. I mean, they're great, they're well-paying jobs where, you know, we're we're adding a tremendous amount of value in that process. Um, the parts sort of further upstream that involve um dealing with tough chemistries, you know, and doing manual work, uh, like at a sewing machine, um, those have moved offshore. And and the reality is ecosystems have been built up around those skill sets in other parts of the world that even if we wanted to say, move some piece of that um, to somewhere else, including sort of reshoring it back to the US, it'd be difficult to do it without moving that whole supply chain with it. And uh, so we don't, we don't do a lot of manufacturing in China per se. We've actually um, in the past done more than we do today. We've, we've migrated out of China um, for various reasons uh, over recent years. Um, uh, but by and large, that Pacific Rim region is the best place in the world to make high-end product like ours and every high-end brand essentially um, goes to those places. Um, you know, for the best quality sewing, the best quality um, fabrics coming out of, you know, Korea, Japan, and so on. Um, so it's really, That's it. you know, for right, us, it's right not, there. You just nailed yeah. it. That, that was your yeah. 10 second answer right there. You yeah, said it was it. way more than 30 and, seconds. <laughs> and I know that a lot of people are going to still shake their heads and, you know, call you a liar, whatever. We're going to have enough people on this show <laughs> to, that will corroborate your story that I hope that down the line, we will sort of maybe change, you know, move the needle a little bit and people will go, okay, I understand why they make that gear over there now. Well, know. can I throw one more thing at that? Yeah, please. Uh, so some years ago, we actually appealed to um, armies, the Army's Mantech division, a manufacturing techniques division for funding to try to develop an alternative to sewing. This is kind of back to we, something we were talking about earlier and how I think someday we'll move past punching a whole bunch of holes, you know, in our waterproof products and then patching over them. Um, largely for the reason that 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 we could reshore that. Like I think if we could replace sewing with more like a CNC kind of process, um, that's that's a higher paying, more more technical skill oriented, sitting at a computer kind of job, which I think could be very viable and very competitive in the states. So I, I don't think. For the long run, there's no future in making products like this um, in the U.S., but I think as they're made today, um, they're actually not the most, uh, the, the supply chain side is not the most desirable jobs in American size. Thank you for uh, doing your best, a, best, a good job explaining it and for trying to keep it short, because I know we could talk for an hours and hours of why uh, people make stuff over there. Hey, it's Turkey Week, March 11 through 17. Free shipping on all orders at First Light, FHF Gear, Phelps Game Calls, and the Meat Eater Store, too. You can pick up all the First Light gear that I wear in the Turkey Woods, plus so much more, including Meat Eater by Phelps Turkey Calls, which are straight-up killers, and Vortex Red Dots at 20% off. We're going to get you set up for the turkey season. So set up, in fact, that all you have to do is focus on that tom so head on over to the meateater.com march 11 through 17 for turkey week all right so jordan and i both landed on this topic as something that we wanted you to, to talk about because it's interesting to us and i think that a, a, a lot of listeners whether you're backcountry hunter or maybe you're not a backcountry hunter but if you're um you know a camper backpacker or whatever but the new thing in insulation, it's not that new. It's probably five or six years old, I guess, I'm at least, but it's like waterproofed down, right? 
Yes. Yeah. I'm always, I'm always, I, I want to just talk in general about insulation, but let's start with, with down and well, let's, let's compare waterproof down to regular down, and then we can compare down to synthetics. But I was always, I was thinking, well, that's the best thing ever. It's going to be like waterproof down, right? It's like, you don't even need synthetics anymore. But then it sort of kind of came about and people started, there were some whispers and everybody's like, yeah, but what if the coatings on that, on the down are actually like limiting how well it performs? So give me the breakdown of, of the waterproof down thing and then, and then compare waterproof down and regular down like in the environment. Yeah. 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 A classic, um, and, and great question. Um, so down just continues to be this totally amazing thing. Like if you get the chance to, and you could Google search it and, and see it, but if you look at a down feather under a microscope, it's a pretty amazing little structure. And yeah. we haven't yet been able to kind of replicate, um, the fractal nature of that structure in a manufacturing process. I mean, what makes the, the down feather such an effective insulator is, you know, it has this kind of relatively rigid little spine, which holds some volume, like it pushes some things away. It declares a little bit of airspace for itself. And then it fills that airspace with all these little teeny microscopic tendrils, which, which restrict airflow. And it's that restriction of airflow that, that produces that insulating effect. And synthetic insulation's come a long way. It's it's closer than ever to 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 replicating the insulating power of the down feather, but but it is not, it does not match it. Um, and so for that reason, you know, as you said, Giannis, um, brands and their suppliers have wanted to figure out how to overcome the one weakness of down, which is when it gets wet all of that goes away. That little structure takes on water and kind of all those little tendrils that would stick out there and stop air from moving, they kind of fold in on themselves and ball up. Um, so in, I lose track of time now, but it was probably something like 10, 10 15 years ago, um, we started to see um, the first available uh, treated down. And Nemo is an early customer of that. Uh, and it's it's proven to be um, quite effective, as you said. Anything you do that sort of adds some mass uh, or chemistry to that down feather is inherently going to have a trade off. Mm -hmm. um, so you, you do see some very marginal um, decline in the 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 dry performance of a down feather as as you treat it with things, but marginal. So I'd say by and large, uh, a treated, and it's, and I should say too, they're, they don't become waterproof. Um, it's really a, a water resistance, um, mm -hmm. but treated down feathers have, have performed well. And I think is, uh, is a, is a good choice. Um, there's also, you know, a whole universe of, um, synthetic materials and, uh, and, you know, and, I think what it really comes down to for the consumer when making this choice is, is really the amount of water you're going to be exposed to. And, and I think the tricky part, Ray, with hunting is we're out at the worst time of the year to be able to answer that question reliably. Cause it's mm -hmm. like, do you, do you know for sure that this fall it's not going to rain ever when you're out, you know, or uh, even when you get into November, December, right. I mean, at least where we are, I mean, it's, it's, it very well might, you know, rain in December here. Um, uh, but the question is, you know, is your, even if it rains, is your bag really likely to get soaked? Yes. You know, and, and I think if it is, you know, whether in your pack, it's going to get soaked or in your tent, then synthetic remains the, 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 the sort of safer choice. I think if, if you have, can have some confidence um, that you'll be able to keep your bag relatively dry um, then down's natural properties are, are still tough to beat. So it's, it's a hard, it still remains sort of a hard question to answer in absolutes. The synthetic insulation, why does it perform so well when it's wet? It's hydrophobic. So it doesn't, it doesn't want water. It doesn't want to absorb water. Okay. So therefore you still, even if you soak your bag, you're still going to have some heat retention value with that. Whereas if you were even the uh, treated down. If that was to get completely soaked, um, it it would not 
retain any uh, heat retention. Yeah, correct. You know, and, and we've all experienced this, right? Like been get caught out, you know, in the rain in a puff jacket, say, and uh, a down puff jacket. And it just, the puff is gone when it's wet, right? And, you know, again, what creates insulating value in, in clothing and in sleeping bags is air, is just trapped air. So, you know, if you're, if you're down puff jacket, just completely loses its loft. It's essentially lost its insulating power. Um, and on the other hand, you know, we all have been out there in a synthetic jacket and had it got wet and still had, you know, remained kind of remarkably lofty. And, uh, and that ability to retain some loft uh, when wet is, is where you're getting some warmth when wet from a, from a synthetic insulation. Yeah, I certainly, as far as my just like personal plan for that, migrated, and this is a while ago, but definitely away from synthetics, even when I was going to Alaska a lot and just being like, you know what? I can use a completely waterproof stuff sack. Then it can be in my backpack, which can have another waterproof lining or maybe a rain cover over it. And it just doesn't come out until it's inside of the tent, you know? And that's kind of been the way that I've, I've handled that situation. And mostly just doing it going that route because of the weight but I think now, is it true? Can you almost get just as light in a synthetic in some of the new synthetic materials as you can in in the high end down? Yep, it, it gets closer all the time, you know. But I think a way maybe to look at it is, you know, if you sort of go out to the extreme, what what does a high altitude mountaineer carry today? And it's still a down bag. So right. if, if you're looking for you know, minus 40 degree performance. Um, in other words, you know, and you want the smallest packing, lightest weight bag uh, at those kind of temperatures, down is still leading the way out in those extremes. But, you know, again, just thinking about it in terms of value for the consumer, um, down is expensive. And, uh, and if you don't need minus 40 degree performance and, you know, you want, um, you want to hedge the bet a little bit around things getting wet. Like, you know, you're not, you know, you, you worry that maybe that, you know, you're going to forget to, to seal the roll top on that, on your stuff sack, Giannis, or, or, uh, or, you know, water is going to, you're sleeping with a tarp, you know, or you're in a floorless tent and in a super ultralight kind of situation or something and groundwater may get on your bag. Um, Synthetic can be a great, uh, versatile, and and a little bit less expensive um, alternative. Yeah, I just bought sleeping bags for my two kids, and uh, they were synthetic. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it saved me a couple hundred dollars at least. You know, could uh, could you give a a quick rundown of like fill powers? A lot of times you'll see like, you know, whichever. I was looking at a um, sleeping bag the other day, and I'm, it comes in different options of fill powers, and I'm like, well. Can you give a quick yeah, explanation on that? Yeah. No, that's a good question. Cause I, yeah. I like just because I sold sleeping bags, I I have a good understanding of it. But I think right on the heels of fill power too, you can roll into sort of like temperature ratings. And yeah. uh yeah. and that'll be a good way to, to finish this out. Yeah. So so fill power is is kind of back to what I was saying about the this so first of all, it applies to down. Um, although personally I would love to see the industry move to uh, more of a universal standard there that included synthetic. Um, and we're actually contemplating that a little bit and how we might go about that. But for oh, the time being, idea. you know, fill power uh, applies to down feathers and kind of comes back to that, that stiff little spine that's in the down feather and kind of its ability to create some volume around itself. So the, the most desirable down feathers are the ones that occupy the most amount of airspace with the least amount of weight, you know, so if airspace is what makes insulation, um, that makes a lot of sense, right? You, you want the, the lightest weight bag possible that has the most loft possible. So Sim you know, simultaneously, a lot of loft, very little weight. So in the, the, the way the full power numbers work is the higher the number, the higher that ability to kind of make volume per weight. So, when you get into the 750, 800 and above, um, which gets pretty exotic range, that's a pretty special and pretty rare um, little down feather that is creating this awesome little volume of air around it with very little weight. 
you know, and, and because those, those feathers are relatively special, um, that drives up the cost quite a bit. Cause that's, you know, hand picking out, um, the most perfect little down feathers and, uh, and then organizing them by their ability to sort of create volume. And the ones you'll end up the most of, with the most of are, you know, at the lower end of that range in that kind of 500 range. A good way for me to understand it's always worked is like if you imagined three, let's just take three different fill powers. And if you took three glass jars, say like a quart size jar, and you took um, just pick your favorite uh, unit of measurement, but let's just say like an ounce yeah. of each different type exactly. of feather. You had an ounce of 650, an ounce of 750, and then an ounce of 900. It's the same amount of weight, but when you put them into that glass jar exactly right. in separate ones, the 650 is going to go up. I'm just making these numbers up, but let's just say two inches. The 750 is going to go up four inches, and then the 900 is going to go up six inches. It still weighs the same, but you've got literally three times the amount of loft or fill in that 900 jar versus the 650 jar. And again, those are hypothetical made up numbers, but that's basically how it works. That like for the same amount of weight, you're getting a whole bunch more loft, which should make the bag warmer, right? Yes. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. And just remembering that, that, that loft is exactly what your insulation is. That's what makes warmth. to the question of the ratings. So that gets pretty wonky. And this is another where area where, Nemo and, and other specialty brands um, and uh, some of our retail partners are really trying to think if there's a if there's a better way f- for the customer to to kind of organize this stuff. But today um, we rate temperatures by three different scales: um, T comfort, T limit, and T extreme. And this is pretty nerdy. Um, but essentially it's, it's related to your metabolism and how you sleep at night. So a tea comfort rating is, is based on you having say a slower metabolism and more likely to sleep cold. And a tea limit is you tend to sleep a little warmer and tea extreme is actually the, the temperature at which it's believed, um, is kind of the minimum temperature that a human being is going to (laughs) survive. So you know, if, if you know, point being, if you know that you tend to sleep cold, then you want to be shopping on a tea comfort scale. That that's the the scale that sort of correlates to, to folks. Now, and you're saying that all bags now will kind of have three different numbers on them. It's, it gets dicey. It's different. It's different by brand. Um, in many cases, uh, two or three of those numbers um, will be indicated. In some cases, it's only the T-limit. T- typically right now, men's bags are rated on a T-limit scale and women's bags are rated on a T-comfort scale. And a brand may or may not sort of declare that. Um, but it's a pretty safe assumption that, you know, if you're shopping for a men's bag, the rating is is based on T-limit. And if you're shopping for a woman's bag today, um, it's based on T-comfort. And there's about, it depends where you are in the temperature range. This is where it gets just ridiculously wonky. But, um, but generally speaking, it's, it's about a 10 or 15 degree difference in temperature. So uh, a woman's bag, say rated at 30 degrees, that same exact bag would be rated a 20 or a 15 degree bag for, for a quote man. Hmm. Um, and you can see where this gets sticky too, because, you know, some women sleep, hot at night or cold at night some men sleep hot or cold at night um so so correlating it to gender doesn't really make a whole lot of sense it really should be the whole system should be based on just kind of how you sleep um would be a lot easier for customers to kind of land in a spot where they end up comfortable yeah i've definitely had you know different zero degree bags and i can i can tell you for a fact that i sleep way hotter in some of them than i do the other ones yeah yeah it gets it gets it gets real sticky. Um, I'd say all, you know, and this is sort of back to something we were saying earlier, where you have, you're placing trust in a, in a brand when you spend your money. Right. And I think in any of the brands you named Giannis or any of the brands we would all agree are kind of, you know, iconic, especially brands in this space. Um, I think you can trust, um, that they're testing at a reliable test agency and, and those are good. Um, those are good, honest, uh, published results, but you know, another thing that happens is no two bags are exactly the same and no one 
publishes, including Nemo, no one publishes their bag temperature as 16.79 degrees. You know, we all, they're all 10 degree, 15 degree, 20 degrees. So there's a certain amount of rounding that's happening there as well. Um, You know, depending on the construction of the bag and the insulation down, for example, can settle within a bag, you know, so unless you construct a bag to handle that, and unless you take care of your bag um, and kind of fluff it up and, and pay attention to this, you can easily have cold spots. You can put a sleeping bag on a pad that doesn't match the insulating value of the sleeping bag. And that, you know, is an integral part of that sort of insulating envelope around you. So you could have a, you could be in a minus 40 degree bag and then in a, laying on a sleeping pad that has an R value of one, you're squishing all the insulation below you in that sleeping bag. So it's basically doing nothing below you. And then you've got a, an R value that doesn't match that minus 40 degrees. And it could be zero degrees out and you're freezing your butt off, right? Mm-hmm. You're thinking, what's wrong with this minus 40 degree bag? Sure. Um, but it's really a matter of uh, not having the pad that matches. So it gets, it gets wonky. Yeah. Yeah. You got to know how to, how to use all that stuff together. Yeah. System. All right. We're going to do a fix it segment. We're going to throw out a hypothetical scenario. Um, You get to camp, you pack in, you blow up your sleeping pad, you know, you cook dinner or whatever. You go to get back on your sleeping pad and it's deflated a little bit. So you've got some kind of hole or something in it. Um, Where would you start? I guess, you know, let's do a hole first. And then maybe let's say it's leaking from the, the, like the bowel stem type situation. What do you do? Got it. Great question. And and certainly a a real world question. So the first thing I'd want to do is, is make sure that the valve is in fact um, operating uh, correctly and, and closed all the way. It's pretty easy, depending on the, there's lots of different kinds of sleeping pad valves out there, but pretty easy to get a piece of grit, you know, stuck, say, under an O-ring um, or caught kind of in the interface of a cap, um, you know, and that's happened to me before. Uh, so I, I, you know, as much as you can, want to kind of disassemble that, inspect it, make sure that it's not just a valve issue. Um, if you're sort of once you move past that, the challenge then would become trying to locate where that leak is. And I find I have found over the years that most of the time, if I have a, a puncture in a in a pad in a pretty quiet quiet environment, like out in the backcountry, if you get everyone to be quiet around you, and you just take a minute and sort of move that pad past your face. The combination of kind of feeling the air draft on your cheeks. And listening carefully with your ear, I'm usually able to, to find that. So I'd kind of do a careful inspection all around, see if I could locate where that hole was. Fixing that then would become now, a matter if, of... Do you think you can actually like pinpoint the hole or do you have mm-hmm. to then maybe put on some water or something to actually see the bubbles? You can do that. Yeah, like a little soapy water can be great because then, you know, you've got soapy water on stuff. Sure. Um, in my case, I, I've had pretty good luck, uh, and really, it's as much about your ear as it is about the the, the little hairs and nerves on your cheeks. Um, if you kind of move that pad across your face, um, you're going to feel that little draft of air. Um, and actually, I, I find I'm usually able to really kind of zero in on that. Um, and then most of the time, or, or say many times, you're going to be able to when it comes down to it, once you're in the zone you're going to be able to visually see, oh, there's the little slice that came from my, the pocket knife I left in my pocket or my keys or whatever, you know, or the, or the thorn on the ground or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. And then you're down to the matter of how you seal that up. And hopefully your pad has with it, um, some means of doing that, whether that's, you know, a little bit of, um, like a urethane adhesive, uh, or a, a self-adhesive style patch, um, which would make that pretty straightforward as long as it's small. Um, otherwise your best bet is going to be hopefully in your kit, you've got some other manner of tape, uh, like maybe some duct tape, um, that won't be any sort of tape solution is very unlikely to be a permanent solution, you know, so you're, you're still going to most likely get air seeping out kind of through the yarns of the fabric underneath, whatever that, unless you can get a glue down in there to kind of seal that up, you're going to get a slow leak. So you know, that night might be about sleeping for a couple hours, putting a little bit more air back in. I'd probably want to to bolster that pad with taking some extra um, kit, like maybe take the foam out of your pack or take some extra clothing, 
and find some, some pine boughs, some other things, you know, that you could put under your pad. And, and particularly if, you know, it's late season and you're on frozen ground um, can kind of shore up the insulating power of, of the pad. When you're applying the adhesive or tape or whatever you're doing, would you do that with the pad completely inflated or deflated? No, you're going to want very little air pressure in it because um, particularly if it's like a adhesive, it's going to be pushing air up through that. Mm. You know, so if you if you try to put a like a seam grip, like a urethane adhesive over that and you have any air pressure in there, it's just going to be making little air bubbles up through that and sort of spoiling um, that connection. If you can do all those things, by the way, um, that's pretty sweet, too. If you can get a little dab of some manner of glue on there to kind of lock up around where that hole is and then shore that up um, with some tape, um, there's no harm in kind of overdoing it. So you'd probably have a a permanent uh, fix at that point. You may have a permanent fix. Yeah, and you'll know. I mean, if you, you know, if you make it through the night with, you know, no or very little apparent loss in air pressure, you're probably good to go, right? Because uh, the next night, um, you know, you only, let's say you only need a pad really to hold air for eight or 10 hours at the most. Right. Uh, Jordan likes to sleep about 14 hours but <laughs> for most of us. Uh, that tenacious tape from Gear Aid is a good, uh, is good, a good tape Yep, that I carry with me that I've patched pads with before. And yep. uh, yeah. Yeah, still, if you can seal that uh, underneath that, just because if you think of the fabric as a weave, um, there's still little air gaps like through those yarns and things. So even as great as a tape like that is, it, it can't get kind of down in there to seal up around all those little yarns. So the best thing is if you can get a glue in there um, in addition to that. Well, Cam, thank you so much, man. We appreciate your time. Uh, we'll let you get out of here. Uh, but that was great. I, I learned a lot and uh, hopefully uh, Jordan did and everybody oh, yeah. else listening. So uh Thank you. And um, yeah, let's uh, let's keep emailing back and forth and come up with another list of uh, fun, you know, techie gear topics to talk about. And we'll have you back on here in a little bit. Sounds great. Well, thanks so much, guys. Truly an honor and a lot of fun. Awesome. All right. Thanks, Cam. Take care, Cam. Cheers. It's Turkey Week, March 11 through 17. Free shipping on all orders at First Light, FHF Gear, Phelps Game Calls, and the Meat Eater Store, too. You can pick up all the First Light gear that I wear in the turkey woods, plus so much more, including Meat Eater by Phelps Turkey Calls, which are straight-up killers, and Vortex Red Dots at 20% off. We're going to get you set up for the turkey season. So set up, in fact, that all you have to do is focus on that tom. So head on over to the meateater.com March 11 through 17 for Turkey Week.